This is like a kind of hall of echoing whispers or something. So, so welcome to the freshman assembly for the class of 2000. For those of you who haven't met me already, I'm Claire Fowler, and I'm the associate dean for freshmen and sophomores in the college. Just over 10 years ago, we instituted the freshman assembly as a way of bringing the intellectual life of the university into the orientation experience. And it's the custom of this assembly to have a distinguished member of the senior faculty address the freshman class on a scholarly topic which also raises broad questions of general cultural relevance. And the design of the assembly is intended to prefigure the experience that you will have at Princeton with most of your classes. That is, you have assigned readings, which I think you all got in a packet from me and also on the web, followed then by a lecture, and then followed by small discussion groups, which tonight, I understand, will be in your residential colleges. But the idea is to model the precept, which is, as you know, the mark of the Princeton way of doing things. Well, I'm very delighted this evening to introduce to you tonight's speaker, Brian Kernahan, professor of computer science, who joined the Princeton faculty three years ago after a distinguished career at Bell Labs, the incubator for much of the innovation in the computer industry. Professor Kernahan received his undergraduate degree in engineering physics from the University of Toronto before coming to Princeton as a graduate student of electrical engineering in 1964. Um, this may be hard for you to imagine, but there were no computer science degrees in those days. After receiving his PhD from Princeton in 1969, Professor Kernahan joined Bell Labs, where he became part of the research group that developed the C programming language and the operating system Unix, which was in fact given its name by Professor Kernahan. And he was recently elected a foreign associate, since he's Canadian, of the National Association of Engineers for contributions to software and to programming languages. Professor Kernahan maintained his relationship with Princeton while at Bell Labs, serving our advisory council on computing and technology since 1978. And in 1999, he was lured here with the university's 250th anniversary visiting professorship for distinguished teaching. It's quite a mouthful. Uh, He enjoyed himself so much that we managed to persuade him to join the faculty. His bibliography is much too long for me to go into here, but he is the author of so many standard texts now in teaching computers here. Um, He's the author of and co-author of more than eight books translated into 21 languages, as well as Braille and audio tapes. Um, Many of you who are doing computer science will inevitably use his textbooks, the Unix programming environment, the C programming language, and the practice of programming. And... While uh, Professor Kernanhan clearly writes these books for the initiated, I have to say he, he has a reputation here as being one of the most user-friendly computer scientists on campus, as well as serving as departmental representative for computer science. He's also an academic advisor for freshmen and sophomores at Forbes College and a popular teacher of Computer Science 109, Computer in our world, an introductory course he developed for those of us, and I include myself here, who are more comfortable with writing than math and with humanities than science. Today, it seems a basic knowledge of computers and their effect on our lives is surely an essential part of a liberal education. 
I leave Professor Kernahan to make the case more persuasively than I in his address to the class of 2007, D is for Digital and Why It Matters. Thanks very much, Claire. And except for the lights, you know, it's absolutely wonderful to see the whole class of 2007, or at least all the ones who could fit in here at one time. It really is great. Uh, so let me start with an experiment, since I'm an anomaly in science. Let me uh, do a very, very brief survey for my own education. How many people here have or are going to have real soon now their own computer at Princeton? If that isn't 100%, it's awful close, right? Um, so how many people have a cell phone? <laughs> how many people have turned them off? <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, and so how many people have a DVD? Uh, and that could include the one in your computer. This is getting kind of boring, and uh, I won't even ask about digital camera. It's probably not quite as high, I'll bet, but anyway. Okay, so that's gadgetry kind of survey. Um, everybody here has obviously used email in the last probably 24 hours or even the last half hour or something like that. How many people use chat regularly? Yeah, everybody. Geez, do I have to even give this talk, Claire? Uh, and of course, everybody surfs. How many people use Google in the last couple of days? So I don't think I need to uh, say too much to make the point that we are surrounded by all kinds of gadgets, things like the digital cameras and the DVDs and the computers and the phones. Um, and furthermore, we obviously depend on a very intricate communication network that connects all of those things to us and to each other. So that's the obvious stuff. What's maybe not so obvious is how recent a phenomenon this is. If I had done that same survey, say, 10 years ago, well, there'd be a lot of computers, but there would be almost no cell phones. There certainly wouldn't be any DVDs. It wasn't invented yet. Um, probably no uh, digital cameras. Email would be common, but only... Did I hear somebody's cell phone? <laughs> bad, bad. Um, and Google. Did you know that today is actually the fifth birthday of Google? September 7th, 1998. <laughs> at the next opportunity, pass on that expression of approval to um, a Princeton graduate named Eric Schmidt, class of 1976, who is CEO of Google. Um, anyway, um, the thing that's interesting about all the devices that I talked about and all of the other things is that they're digital devices. So D really is for digital. We have a digital computer. Digital computers process a digital representation of information. The communication network, the internet that we all use, is a digital communication network. And the hardware, the physical gadgets themselves, like the cell phones and so on, are digital as well. And all of those things together, the digital hardware in particular, are getting smaller and cheaper and faster at an exponential rate. And so why it matters is that that combination of rapid, rapid change and digital technology is really affecting our lives and the society that we live in. And that change is actually accelerating, and it's probably going to have 
even more of an effect in the future than it has already had on us in the past. And that suggests that we ought to know something about it and maybe in some way be comfortable with it so that we can prepare for what it might bring to us in the future. Now think about the article by Vannevar Bush, which you were supposed to read. Well, here's another obvious survey question. No, I won't even ask. Everybody read it. <laughs> One of the things that, that Bush described in that article was a very interesting thing that he called a memex. It was something like sort of the size of a desk and it had a screen and a keyboard. And it stored things like books and papers and other things on what looked like microfilm, and so you could take anything that was interesting, you could stick it in the Memex, and then you could recover it later on, you could make links between things that were interesting. So it was kind of an inspiring idea for 1945, a long time ago. If you think about today, what we've got with the combination of the computer, like the one that I'm running over there, like the one that all of you have, and the internet, and Google, that's the Memex. Except that it's an incredibly richer and much more powerful Memex than anything that Bush thought of. And the reason that it's so much richer than his vision or that he didn't see it as well is that he missed all the digital things. He missed the digital computer, which was just coming along in 1945. He missed the digital representation of information. All of his information was represented basically on film. And he totally missed digital communication. His Memex stood alone. It was totally isolated and you had to in effect get things in the mail to put it in. So it's really hard to predict the effects of anything, and in particular technology. I'm not going to try very much of that. The other thing I'm not going to try and do tonight is to talk about digital technology and its effect on society, because that's a preposterously big topic, and it wouldn't work even if I knew anything about it. So what I'm going to do is to talk about something that's much closer to home, much more uh, manageable, let's say, in the space of half an hour or something like that. I'm going to talk about digital music. Digital music is obviously very interesting um, in a lot of different ways, and music itself is, of course, very interesting and important to many of us all the time. And digital music is definitely the place where an awful lot of the forces, the changes that we're seeing, are coming together in a way that really affects the lives of everyone and very much affects the lives of you guys. So that's what I'm going to talk about. And the way I'm going to do it, I'm going to start, in fact, by playing you a piece of music. This is one that I rather like. Um, this is a piece of music that was written, in fact, in 1638, so it's not exactly pop. Um, <laughs> it was written um, by a guy named Gregorio Allegri. He was a singer in the papal choir that sang in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. And it's called a Miserere. It's a setting of Psalm 51. Um, the piece itself is about 12 or 13 minutes long. I am going to play you a roughly one-minute excerpt from it. And with that, after it's over, I will tell you the really very interesting story that goes along with it. So let's see if we can actually coerce this thing, this is technology, into playing Allegre's Miserere.
actually always wanted to hear that here in uh, Richardson Auditorium. <laughs> uh, the, the marble makes the soprano echo very, very nicely. Um, anyway, so the story. This was written in 1638, um, and the popes, it was started with Urban VIII, really liked this music very much, obviously, for good reason. And so it was kept under lock and key. It was an excommunicatable offense to publish it in any way. Um, and it was sung only by the papal choir, and it was sung only during Easter week in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. And so if you wanted to hear this piece of music, you had to be there, and there was no other choice. And things stayed in that state until 1770, when a 14-year-old kid, somebody younger than most of you, showed up, um, heard the music, rather liked it, went away, wrote it down from memory, and at this point, the story gets a little fuzzy, but somehow his transcription found its way into the hands of an English music publisher, not subject to excommunication because he was Protestant. And uh, at that point, the music was dispersed all over Europe, and it broke the Pope's monopoly. This is sort of an early example of music sharing, if you like. Uh, <laughs> and of course, the kid was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Um, so you had to be there to hear it. This was the real drawback. And so at that point, you could now hear this piece of music anywhere as long as you gathered together a choir and a soprano who could sing that kind of stuff. Um, but that wasn't really what you want. If you want to do something like hear it right here, uh, what do you do? So in 1877, Thomas Edison, the great American inventor, had an idea, and he built a machine that he called a phonograph, which was something that would record sound in a form that could be played later on. You could make copies of it, you could play it somewhere else. And so you could preserve performances for a long period of time. Now, uh, Edison's original technology was pretty flaky, but very rapidly people started to improve on it, and it became the fashion to record famous people very early on, and I'm going to play you one example of that. This is a recording that's surprisingly old in one way. Um, it is a piece of The Charge of the Light Brigade, a poem that Alfred Tennyson wrote in 1854, and this was recorded just a couple of years before Tennyson died in 1890, so he was born in 1809, so he was quite an old man at the time that this was done. And this comes from a wonderful CD put out by the British uh, Library Sound Archive, so let's see, it's a very short excerpt. Well, not exactly high five, but it's kind of interesting, and it's, I think, in many ways, mind-blowing to hear somebody who was one of the premier Victorian poets speaking his own poetry at that time, well over 100 years ago. Okay, so what's sound? Um, fundamentally, what sound is is obviously a fluctuation in air pressure. My voice box vibrates, it sends it out. Um, you folks hear it here. Um, that fluctuation in air pressure, in air, yes, in air pressure, Let's try that again. That fluctuation in air pressure is heard by our ears and processed by our brain, and that's what we hear is sound. And in fact, you can see what that fluctuation looks like. Here's a picture of, in fact, this is the miserere that we just heard. That's about a minute of sound there, and towards the left we have the, the bass or antenna voices, the, the male part, and then towards the middle we have the a female choir, and then the part towards the right is the soprano hitting the high C. So that's the fluctuation of the sound as that sound is, is being played, and if we zoom in on it, that's about a minute. If I zoom on it, this is about 25 milliseconds. So this is a very, very short period. And that the green line on the top, which is probably hard to see anyway, is essentially the soprano hitting the high C note in that piece of music. 
So a recording device is something that captures that fluctuation in some form that can later on be sort of run backwards, reversed, so that you can hear it. Uh, it exercises your ears. And for many, many years, the evolution of Edison's device was the record, which eventually became the LP, or the long playing record, this thing over. I saw something in, in the, a magazine this morning that said, um, you can show your grandchildren <laughs> these things, because they, they wouldn't know what it was. Um, so anyway, um, what, the way that one of these things works, it, to, to sort of tell you the obvious, thing turns like this. There's a very, very fine spiral groove there, which the walls of the groove vary according to the pressure that uh, wave that corresponds to the original sound. There's a fine needle that follows the groove, vibrating like this. When the needle vibrates following the groove, it causes an electrical signal, gets amplified, goes to a loudspeaker, uh, gets amplified, made sound waves, and you and I hear it. So that's a very, very simple mechanism. Now, this is actually pretty clunky in some ways, but it turned out that this was an incredibly successful technology. This lasted for something between 75 and 100 years, depending on how you count it. Um, these things are not perfect. They degrade with use because the needle's making physical contact with the thing. They get scratched. They get dirty. Early ones broke very easily. But it did last 75 to 100 years. And then in about 1981 or 82, a new technology came along that killed it dead in about five years. Okay? And what was that technology? This. The CD. And the lady on the left, Deborah Roberts, is a soprano you heard. So that's the CD we were listening to. So that's the thing that killed these things dead. And it, the difference between this and a record, like the thing I just showed you, is that this is a, a digital technology. In fact, you can see D all over it. It's the stereo digital, D, D, D. D is for digital. It sounds like Dr. Seuss. Um, <laughs> how do you represent sound digitally? What does that mean? Well, okay, so here comes the, the technical part of the talk. It won't last very long, so bear with me. Um, but fundamentally, suppose that we have a wave that looks like this. This is the pressure wave of the soprano hitting the, the note or something like that. Okay, so that's kind of the old representation. You could imagine the needle following that. But suppose what we do instead is just measure the height of that wave. What we'll do is we'll start at the left, and every so often we will measure how high is the wave at that point in time as we march across from left to right. So we do that, okay? So that's how high the wave is at any given time. And so you can see that the heights of those things sort of give you an idea of what the wave was like. Now, that's not very good because I didn't measure it very often. But you can see if I zoom in on it like that and measure it really, really frequently and very, very accurately, that would give me enough information that I could later on recreate the wave. And so what I've done here is to start with something that looks like that convert it then, and measure it. And so here are the numbers that represent how high is the wave in you know, some units. And so the numbers tell me everything I need to know about this. That's all I need. And so I can hand you the numbers. I don't have to hand you the wave anymore. I can hand you the numbers. It's kind of boring, but you could imagine writing them out on a piece of paper or something like that. I would hand them to you as people like this. If I'm going to hand them to a computer, I would hand them in the ubiquitous binary numbers that show up in computers so often, zeros and ones. And in fact, if I were doing this on a CD like this, the bright, shiny surface, what you see in here, that look, Ramin, destroy the camera. If you can, <laughs> uh, sorry about that. 
What looks like an absolutely perfect shiny surface here, in fact, is an intricate pattern of places that are perfectly shiny and places that have a little pit. And a laser shines on that thing as it turns, and by seeing the, the pattern of reflection, you can tell whether there was a pit there or not a pit there at any given place, and therefore whether it was one of these zeros or ones, and that's what makes the numbers. Okay? Given those numbers, you can recreate it and run the whole thing backwards. You can make a pressure wave, and we can hear it. So that's how, very quickly, CDs work. And that's how digital representation of sound works. So in some ways, it sounds like it's more complicated. Why is it better? Well, obviously, it's better in some trivial ways. This thing is much more compact than that 12-inch LP that I showed you. So they really are compact disks. Um, they're also relatively indestructible. They don't scratch very easily. They don't get dirty very easily. Um, they don't degrade with use. So in that sense, they're all good. But those are all trivial reasons. The real reason why digital stuff is better in this context is that it's much more general mechanism. That it can store on that CD anything that I can reduce to numbers. And so that means sound. We just showed you how to reduce sound to numbers. You can imagine how you might reduce the tracks, you know, the name of the artist and the name of the song and how long the song is and so on. You could imagine reducing that to a set of numbers. You could imagine having a little picture of the artist. You can have in a little movie like a teaser. All kinds of things that could be on that same CD because they're all reducible to numbers and therefore all representable on the same gadget. And so a CD, and fundamentally the digital representation, is infinitely more flexible than the very specialized mechanism of the LP. So digital stuff can represent anything like that. It's very malleable. You can do all kinds of interesting transformations on it. You can imagine cleaning up little pieces of noise in it or compressing it in a variety of ways. You can do all of these things because you can process digital information very effectively. How do you process digital information? Well, that's where the digital computer comes in. So let's talk about computing for uh, a couple of minutes. I'll give you the sort of the two-minute history of computing, and then you can skip some course that you would otherwise have to take. Um, <laughs> the story, I guess, would probably start with an English man named Charles Babbage. Babbage was born in 1791. He actually was born three weeks to the day after Mozart died, for whatever that's worth. Um, Babbage was a scientist of considerable stature in England, and he was very involved with astronomical computations, and he did a lot of things that required tables of basically formula values that had to be computed, and they were all computed by hand. And this was a terribly tedious and inaccurate kind of thing, and at some point he said something which was very intriguing. He said, I wish to God these calculations had been executed by steam. Well, <laughs> this is kind of an interesting image, because you don't, you know, steam. Um, but think when he's saying this. He's saying this in 1829, in fact, which is about 60 years after Watt developed the steam engine. And it's well before the invention of electricity and well before things like the gasoline engine, right? So what Babbage is doing is, in effect, metaphorically saying, I want to compute these things mechanically. I don't want to do them by hand because I'm not very good at it. Um, and so he spent the rest of his life basically designing and trying to build machines that would do computation by machine, mechanically. Um, he never succeeded, partly for technological reasons, but largely because of political and economic reasons. He was not a very political person, and therefore he had economic problems, which is another lesson you probably understand. Um, however, his designs were absolutely sound. 
And in uh, preparation for his, the 200th anniversary of his birth in 1991, the Science Museum in London actually went and using 1840s technology built a version of one of his machines from his original designs and it's there. Uh, the picture's not too great. You can't really get an idea of the scale of this thing except that in the lower right corner of it is a handle and you can imagine doing this. So this thing is 11 feet long, it's 7 feet high, and it weighs 3 tons. So <laughs> portable is perhaps not the right word. Um, anyway, so that was Babbage and this was sort of the 1840s roughly. Not much happened then for close to 100 years, and then I think in part through pressure of war concerns in the 19, late 1930s and 40s, there were a couple of, of trains of events that happened in the United States that brought computing back again. One of them um, was an attempt to build electromechanical computers, and this was done at a small liberal arts college in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, And now, it, this is a machine. It, as you can see, this is also slightly bigger than somewhat. This thing was 50-odd feet long and six feet high and five or six feet deep. Um, and it was a joint project between IBM and a professor at this institution, um, <laughs> dare I name it, uh, Harvard. Um, and <laughs> this is the Harvard Mark I. Um, and it turned out that, that the specific technology, electromechanical things, was not the right thing. And I, I hesitate because I have many friends at Harvard to use Harvard and dead end in the same sentence, but um, you get the idea that this was not the totally successful machine. Um, the, other, the other path that was followed essentially at the same time was going on at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and that was a machine called ENIAC which was entirely electronic, and so that turned out ultimately to be much more successful. Now, if any of you are actually interested in such things, it turns out that there are pieces of both of those machines, the Harvard Mark I and the uh, ENIAC, at their respective institutions. If you're at Harvard, drop into the Science Center, they've got about 15 feet of the thing sitting there. It's an amazing piece of machinery, and there's something similar at the Moore School uh, at Penn. Worth looking at. So what's happened over the last 50 or 60 years? This picture dates from probably 1946 or 47. What's happened over the last 50 or 60 years, then, is taking that, the evolution of what you see in the ENIAC, and making it into what I'm sitting over there with a, you know, an IBM ThinkPad you know, laptop, just like everybody here has got in some sense. Something which is incredibly more powerful, unbelievably more powerful than that. Faster, cheaper, better, reliable, and all of those kinds of things, but fundamentally very similar. The logical progression of all of this. So what you should take away from this little piece of it, in fact, is the idea that a computer, the ones you guys have got, is in fact not much more than a calculator, like those little four-function calculators you used to get. Um, it does arithmetic, but boy does it do arithmetic fast, incredibly fast. Um, furthermore, it's largely in control of its own destiny. It decides what it's going to do next on the basis of what it's done already. So it's using the result of previous computations to decide what to do next. Secondly, it's a general purpose device. It stores in its memory not only the data that it's going to compute with, but the instructions that say what to do with the data. And therefore, you can make it do something different by putting in different instructions into the memory. And you can flip back and forth between them. And that's what we do when we run different programs. And so that generality is the reason why this machine sitting here can be showing you slides and playing music and can be surfing the web and it could be playing games and it could be reading mail and doing my taxes and all these other things. One machine, 
very general purpose because different sets of instructions make it do different things. Okay? And finally, and this is really the interesting thing, that idea of putting the instructions and the data in the same place dates from Babbage. He saw that absolutely clearly in 1840, totally clearly. It was implicit in his machines, and it was implicit and, in fact, very explicit in the ENIAC, and it's, of course, the way these things work. So underneath the skin, all of these machines are really the same. They do the same things. They do them at different speeds, but fundamentally, they have that same computing power, and that's really the interesting thing. Okay, so somewhere in the progression between ENIAC and my ThinkPad over there, which is showing me a picture of ENIAC, it's a bit confusing, um, <laughs> there was a stage where these things got cheap enough that people could buy them, not just businesses, but people. And somewhere in there, and again, about 1981, um, this is a machine that sort of almost looks familiar in a way. It's kind of like one of these clunky desktop machines, except most of you got laptops, I'll bet. Um, this is, in fact, an IBM PC, which dates from 1981. And this was the first personal computer, personal in the sense that an ordinary individual who had sort of three to 5,000 bucks could buy one of the things. And furthermore, because of that, you could start to use it for things that were not, you know, computing trajectories for bombs and things like that. You could actually use it for something different. And so the article that I asked you to read by James Fallows called Living with a Computer was about his discovery of how to use machines like this. He didn't back the right horse there either. Um, it was about how to use these machines for what he did, which was word processing. He's a writer. He's a very fine writer. And so he used his personal computer for writing, something that is not the traditional thing. So what we're seeing is as the machines are getting cheaper and faster, they broaden out in the set of things that you can use them for. You can start to do them, use machines to do more than you could originally when they were too expensive. Okay? The two devices that I've talked about now, I talked about the CD coming along in 1981 or so, and the PC coming along in 1981, they kind of got together in about 1985. And PCs started to have CD players in them. And that was partly because it was easy to load programs and data and all kinds of other things, but it also made it possible to play music on a PC, which many, many people did. And, gee, computers are general-purpose devices. They can process numbers. The numbers might represent sound. Perhaps we could do some interesting transformation on the sound. And so it took a while for machines to get fast enough, but sort of by the late 1990s, people had gotten machines fast enough and understanding enough of what's going on that they were able to do a particularly intriguing transformation on sound. So they take a record like this. This is an ordinary audio CD. It holds about, what, 600 megabytes or something like that. And an algorithm called MP3, a word you've many have heard of, says, I can take that 600 megabytes and I can squash it down by a factor of 10. 60 megabytes. Or alternately, having squashed it, I can send it to somebody else over a network connection 10 times as fast as I might have been able to do before. And it sounds exactly the same. That Allegre that I played for you was an MP3. And my bet is that most of you didn't know that it wasn't something more exotic. So now we have a way of making sound and making it actually fairly compact, intriguing. There's one more thread that I want to bring into this now, and that's the communications thread, the digital communications. Obviously, everybody here is used to email and surfing and Google and all that sort of stuff. All of that depends underneath on a network that's 
in some ways almost invisible, called the Internet. The Internet, in fact, has been around in some form since roughly 1969, uh, which dinosaurs still walked the earth. Remember, that's when I got out of here. Uh, uh, yes, but it was the province of specialists for a very long time. But in the early 90s, in fact, in 1993, in April of 1993, some students at the University of Illinois unleashed on the world a very interesting program, which they called a browser. It's hard to believe the browser is only 10 years old. But they wrote a browser called Mosaic, and what that did was to take this fairly exotic technology, the specialist technology internet, and make it very, very easy for anybody, no matter how technical their interests or background, to find information that was out there somewhere and to make their own information and put it out so that other people could look at it. So in some sense, the browser very much hastened the spread of Internet te technology around the world. So let's get back to digital music. We've been away from it for a little while. Here we are in the late 1990s. What do we got? Every student has a computer. Showed that, right? Every student computer has a CD drive so they can get music into their machine. Every student computer has software that will convert that stuff into MP3. Absolutely, this is, you know, Wimamp and rippers like that. And of course, every student has an internet connection. So we're right on the edge of the perfect storm here. Oh boy, are we right on the edge. And all it takes is one tiny destabilizing event. And that tiny stabilizing event is a college freshman named Sean Fanning, who had a bright idea. This is Sean Fanning. <laughs> he is a very bright guy, but this looks like a deer cut in the headlights. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and Sean Fanning's really bright idea was a program. He dropped out of college, in fact, to write the program, which he called Napster. And Napster was released to the world in May of 1999. And it what Napster did was to make it really easy for people who wanted to share MP3 music to find each other. It just made it incredibly easy. It really was a nice piece of work. And it was so popular, it went from zero users to 80 million users in the space of about a year. The article on, called The Heavenly Jukebox by Charles Mann, which again I ask you to read, was on the rising side of that curve. But you could see in Mann's article that there was trouble lurking in some sense. Um, and the trouble was that the recording industry saw in Napster theft on a truly grand scale, an unbelievable scale, 80 million people stealing music. And they were extremely unhappy about that. And so they sued, they won their case, and Napster was shut down early in 2001. And this practically defines the notion of internet time. Zero to 80 million to zero in two years. So, Napster was vulnerable, partly for a technical reason. The way that Napster worked is it had a centralized directory. Everybody who was sharing music at a given time, all of the information about what they were sharing was on a Napster computer. And it had a sort of what we would call a jurisdictional vulnerability. They were in the United States. And so it made it very easy to apply American law to them and put them out of business. However, the service that was provided by things like Napster was so popular that alternatives came along very, very quickly 
that didn't have those problems. And these are things like Kazaa and Morpheus and Grokster and Limeware and Bearshare and you name it. Okay, I probably missed half of them. Um, which were not vulnerable in the way that Napster was. First, they didn't have a central directory, which was the list of music that was being shared. It was sort of distributed among a bunch of cooperating machines. And secondly, they had no presence in the United States at all, and so they were not subject to American law in the same way. And so they turned out to be very much harder to shut down. So in reaction, what happens? The recording industry decides instead that they will go after individuals who are sharing music, because if the individuals are in the United States, they're easier to get at. And this is the place where this starts to come very close to home. <laughs> Our own Dan Peng was sued in April of this year. It's been settled since. The Recording Industry of America has gone on to issue interesting threats. This is, this is a full-page ad from the New York Times on June 26th, uh, which I, I assume is aimed at parents as much as students, but you never know. Um, and that continues to this day, of course. There's a very large amount of activity in that area. And part of what is going on there is an attempt as well to make the legal system work to discourage this kind of file sharing or active sharing of music, which may well be stolen. Um, and so hearings have been held. Here's an excerpt from a hearing that I, I honestly don't know. I think this may have been the Senate Judiciary Committee, but I'm not sure. Uh, and this is quoting Senator Hatch, Republican of Utah. And the critical, he's describing his concerns about copyright, and the critical part or at least the part that is perhaps most interesting is that thing in there that says, he, um, I'm all for destroying their machines. Um, now, in fairness to Senator Hatch, I uh, understand what he's saying. He makes money. In addition to his day job as a senator, he makes money by selling music that he writes. You can go to his website and you can find CDs that he has participated in, and so he's, his royalty stream, at least in principle, is being interfered with by people who are copying his music. So what's going on here? What you see is kind of like an arms race, right? You know, somebody does something, somebody does something worse in reaction, somebody does something even worse in reaction, and it escalates. And in some sense, the weapons on both sides are getting more and more destructive here. I'm not sure that that's a good way to be doing things. But think of this. Music is only one piece of this. It's only one of the examples. You can see, if you look around, the same sort of thing happening in books and movies and ultimately TV. We're not quite there yet with TV, but when digital TV comes along, we will be. All of these things are what is called intellectual property. They're not physical property. It's hard to put your hands on these things, but they are the result of somebody's creative effort, and they really do belong to individual people. Think about books. Back in the Middle Ages, books were copied by scribes. You know, people laboriously sat there, wrote stuff. The invention of printing in 1440 made it possible to make books on grand scale, very, very easy. But it was, you know, you still had to have a printing press to do that. The Xerox machine came along in probably the 50s or 60s of last century and made it pretty easy to make a copy of a book, but the copy wasn't good. And then the copy of the copy was even worse. And so it wasn't really a grave threat to what was going on. But consider now what happens I see a book I like, I can go 
take my scanner, I can scan every page, I can clean it up a bit, I can post it on my web page, and then everybody in the world can have the book. And all of the copies are just as good as the very first one that I made, and there's no distribution charge for that. And since this has happened to <laughs> one or two of the books that Claire mentioned uh, earlier, I'm sensitive. This is a place where I understand what Senator Hatch is saying. So, <clears throat> yes, grump. <laughs> anyway, um, if it's happening to books, think about movies. Movies are incredibly expensive intellectual property. I mean, it costs tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to make a movie. But think what's going on. Movies are distributed on DVD, a digital mechanism. We just showed all of you guys have got DVD players in your computers, so you can now get those bits onto your computer and do something with them. DVD burners are now less than 200 bucks. And does this sound like deja vu all over again? That we could do the same thing with movies as we can? Well, obviously, people already do, but it's going to get better or worse, depending on which side you come from. So what's happening with all of these things is that there used to be very specialized, complicated mechanisms, like the long-playing record, that made it difficult for people to copy things on a large scale. Copying itself was really manufacturing. You had to make stuff. The copies were often not as good as the original because the manufacturing may have required real skill and you couldn't do it as well. And distribution meant that you had to actually physically carry stuff around, you know, send it by FedEx or whatever. And so all of that stuff limited what you could do. It made people's intellectual property somewhat safer. But when we move to a digital world, what we have is absolutely uniform representation of information the stuff is dirt cheap to do. All these digital mechanisms are not subject to any of the physical limitations that used to protect intellectual property. Copies are free. Digital copies cost nothing to make. Digital copies are perfect. Each one is identical to all the others. They don't get worse. And distribution is free. Put it on the web. Anybody can have it. So now what do you do? The physical limits, limitations like manufacturing and so on that used to protect this kind of stuff don't work anymore. So you're sort of stuck there. What else might you do to protect information? Well, one thing that has been tried is some kind of encryption. You take all those nice numbers that are on the CD or something like that, and you scramble them in such a way that they can't be unscrambled except by a special device or a cryptographic key or something like that. Unfortunately, that stuff doesn't seem to work. In fact, sometimes it works very um, inadequately. Let me show you, actually. This is kind of intriguing. So here's a CD. This is Celine Dion, A New Day Has Come. Uh, <laughs> I believe she is one of, one of my country people, but I don't actually... <laughs> It's not my kind of music either, unfortunately. Um, this CD says, right down in the corner, will not play on PC or Mac. Now this one, you can't, I tried to buy it down on, this, on uh, Nassau Street, and I couldn't find one that said that. This came from England. Um, but will not play on PC or Mac, and it's absolutely true. I've tried it on that machine, and it won't. It's, got, it's copy protected, so it has a mechanism in it that protects copyright. Now it turns out that, in fact, if you take the CD and you take this high-tech device, which is known as a felt-tip pen, 
and you very carefully inscribe around the edge, right at the edge here, a little black mark, that defeats the copy protection mechanism. <laughs> Before you get too excited, um, I should observe that that's against the law. This is, in fact, the first sentence of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998 that says that circumventing copy protection mechanisms is illegal. And they will come after you. They won't come after me for that. Um, but if you do it on a grand scale, they probably will. So that's a piece of it. Now, there's something else that's interesting. The DMCA is a law which I won't even say is well-intentioned, but it has many properties. Let me try one of them. Could you hand that to the young lady to your right, please, Claire? Another piece of the DMCA, a later section, says that it is illegal to traffic in any technology designed to produce. <laughs> this is clearly one of the places where, in some sense, the law, however good its intentions, is not sort of solving the problem, I think. Um, but the problems with this kind of thing are leading to ever stronger or at least attempts to make ever stronger laws, more and more draconian in their effect, things that I think ultimately will impede progress in a lot of different ways, as well as, to some extent, deterring people from doing things that they genuinely should not be doing. Perhaps those of you who saw this morning's New York Times saw a front-page article on how the uh, recording industry in particular is attempting to link music sharing with porn sharing, and therefore they're both bad, and therefore it should require permission to... Uh, download file sharing software. So I think that this is something where <clears throat> it's going to go on for quite a while, and we're not there yet. Ultimately, we're going to have to get to a situation where the law balances a variety of legitimate concerns, the legitimate concerns of people who own intellectual property to derive benefit from it and not have it stolen, the legitimate rights of individuals to make what used to be called fair use of these kinds of things, and a variety of other things. We're not there yet, and it's going to be difficult. I think in the long run, and this is a place where I can't predict the future even <laughs> as well as I normally can, which is not at all. But I think, I think in the long run, it's going to come down to economic incentives in part. The, uh, for example, Apple's selling tunes at 99 cents or whatever is a step in the right direction, especially because they have had relatively generous copying provisions as part of that. But it then requires individuals, you and me and all the rest of us, to play by the rules as well and not take stuff and spread it more broadly than we reasonably should. Okay, so enough on uh, digital music. Digital music is, in some sense, the tip of the iceberg for intellectual property. Okay, we saw digital music, but then there's books and music and TV and who knows what else. But digital technology raises a bunch of other issues as well. And I think in some sense we're in a sea of icebergs. There's a whole bunch of things that are potential problems. Let me mention basically just one more, perhaps, privacy. Digital technology, like many technologies, is a two-edged sword. It does... It brings many, many good things. Good almost always outweighs the bad. 
but there's definitely bad that goes along with it. If you think the technology that makes email possible, and we all love to get email, also makes spam possible, right? So kind of bad news there. The technology that makes it possible for us to download pictures and movies and a variety of other things, new software, also enables viruses and spyware and bad things like that. Um, the technology that makes it possible for us to do online shopping and online banking and all of those kinds of things also makes it fairly easy to do things like identity theft. And uh, it also makes it very easy for p people, not necessarily always good ones, to combine and collate, collect interesting information about you from all sorts of places and put it together in ways that reveal aspects of your life that you might not actually want revealed or at least known as well as they are. And I think there's a real danger in a lot of this that the ability to take all of this digital information and process, collect it and process it uh, can erode our privacy, our right to privacy can actually vanish. And I think that that's merely one of the icebergs. Looking at this morning's paper, there was another a totally different article about the effect of viruses on infrastructure, things like power grids. So there's a different iceberg, which I'm not going to talk about at all. No shortage of icebergs. So I think the deal here is that we're in the very, very early stages of a revolution. Um, we have digital technology that makes it incredibly easy for us to collect all kinds of information, collate it, study it, distribute it very easily. And all of that stuff is a digital representation. It's very uniform, as we showed sound, music, books. doesn't matter. It all goes in one place. Um, we have the universal processor of this, the digital computer, which makes it easy to do that kind of computation very, very quickly. We have a digital network that connects absolutely everything. The Internet reaches all of the corners of the world, and we have to um, take this stuff from everywhere, process it, send it back out everywhere, and there's practically no cost to doing that and very often no restraint as well, either physical or legal. And finally, the physical devices that make all of this stuff possible continue to get smaller, cheaper, faster, better at an exponential rate. So what that all means, I think, is rapid change, accelerating change, and almost guaranteed disruptive change, things that are going to really change what we can do, and that's going to happen as far into the future as we can see. So you guys are supposed to go back to your residential colleges and think about stuff and discuss and so on. Let me give you a few random questions that you might think about tonight. Um, there's a couple of really short, you know, short focus kinds of things that you might wonder about related to digital music. Where is the line between legitimate sharing and flat out stealing? If I make a copy of this TELUS record, which I really like, and put it in my car, that's fair use. If I make a copy of the Celine Dion record and put it in my car, that's fair use. Because I'm not interfering with anybody's market. Perfectly fine. I'm making a backup. If I like those things so much that I put them in MP3 format on my web page and let the world have them, I'm stealing. Plain and simple. There's no ambiguity about that. Where is a sensible line there? How should the law be written so that we deal correctly with it? How should the economic system work so that people are encouraged to do the right sort of thing? And how do we, as you know, honest, reputable people, behave ourselves? That's something that you could discuss. People will have different opinions on that, but that's, I think, a reasonable set of very short-term kinds of questions. Maybe some broader questions. What's going to happen next? 
Think about Napster. Napster arrived here in September of 1999, along with the class of 2003. It left two years earlier than the class of 2003. Um, but while it was here, it had an amazing effect on campus. Everybody used Napster, absolutely everybody. What's going on right now that might be that same kind of thing that will kind of change the way you folks interact among yourselves or with the outside world or some aspect of your lives? So that's kind of a social, you know, what's a, you know, outside of classroom kind of question. What might be going on there? Another one, computers obviously had a tremendous effect on many academic fields, certainly in the sciences. As Claire mentioned, computer science didn't exist when I was a grad student. Um, computing is going to have, has already had, effect on every academic discipline. What's it likely to do to your discipline, whatever that might turn out to be, over the four years that you're here on campus? And then I think there's a bunch of really long-term questions, and I, these are very fuzzy, obviously, but it's sort of like, what kind of society are we going to live in? Where are we going? Is that where we want to go? And if it isn't where we want to go, what do we do to try and steer the things in the slightly different direction so that we don't run into some of these metaphorical icebergs? That's a good set of questions as well. Okay, let me finish up with a personal note, oh, very personal. You guys will find out over the next four years that this is an absolutely fantastic place to be a student. It is just wonderful. You cannot believe it. But in four years, you'll know that I was right. You will also find, perhaps you'll hear, it's also a wonderful place to be on the faculty. And the reason, one of the reasons that it's such a great place to be on the faculty is that every year, people leave 1,200 really, really bright, interesting, fun, neat people for us to talk to for four years. It's absolutely a blast. And the whole class of 2007 this time, right? <laughs> <laughs> So the way part of it, at least the academic business works is that we ask you questions and you give us back what we think are the right answers, okay? Um, <laughs> but um, let me tell you, it works better if you guys ask the questions. And in fact, the very, very best questions come from the people who don't already know the right answers. Long ago, Francis Bacon said, a prudent question is one half of wisdom. So your job, starting tonight, next four years, rest of your lives. Ask the prudent questions. Thanks. Great people. <laughs>should now go start asking questions back at their residential colleges. I should also tell you that Professor Carnahan is actually teaching computers in our world this fall. Thanks.
Bye-bye.